This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Not too long ago, we told you about the American Worldview Inventory 2020, a national survey conducted by Dr. George Barna as Director of Research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Among other findings, the survey showed that 9% of Americans aged 50 or older have a biblical worldview that compares to just 5% of people in their 30s and 40s and a mere 2% of 18 to 29-year-olds, which is very shocking. But what about the perceptions of American adults when it comes to sin and salvation. The Cultural Research Center has just highlighted those statistics and they really are shocking. So we're going to break them down now with Dr. George Barna. George, so good to welcome you back. How are you doing? Uh, doing well, Jan. Thanks for having me back. Well, it is always great to have you here, although the subject matter can be a little bit depressing sometimes when you look at some of these stats. This survey reveals that Americans have increasingly adopted the idea that salvation can be earned. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out on the subjects of sin and salvation? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things that we looked at, and among the most revealing, I think, have to do with how people think salvation works. What we discovered is that about half of Americans, a plurality, actually the largest percentage, believe that a person can gain eternal salvation either by being good enough or by doing enough good works. Hmm. Only about a third of the population disagreed with that, and then you had one out of six people who had no idea. And what was most surprising to me about all of that, I mean, that's, that's not good news, but what we discovered is that about half of the people who consider themselves to be Christian, whether they attend Pentecostal churches or, or others, agree with that notion that you can earn eternal salvation. And indeed, a lot of people who would say that their salvation, they believe is guaranteed because they've confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their Savior, a lot of those people believe that you've also got the option of trying to be good enough so that you can earn your way in, almost as if there's two offers on the table and you can take either one. That is really strange. How did that come out in the data that they simultaneously were trying to have those concepts coexist in their minds? Well, on the one hand, they're looking at how they believe that that they put together their eternal plan. You know, where are they going to go after they die? What's going to happen to them? And their perspective was, you know, I was fortunate that I was able to invite Christ into my life, confess my sins, acknowledge that I need a Savior, He's the one, and they believe that because of that, they're saved. But by the same token, they're saying, but that's not the only way, because God is such a loving God that He gives us a variety of ways. He doesn't want us to perish, He doesn't want us to suffer, that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. But if that's not good enough for you, here's another way that he's going to allow you in. Now, the other reality to this is that we're also talking about two different branches of the Christian community. On the one hand, you've got Protestants 
a larger share of whom said, no, salvation is, is not gotten through good works or being a good person. It's uh, achieved only through accepting Christ after confession of sins. But then on the other hand, you've got 70% of Catholics who would say that, yes, salvation is based on, on deeds or, or being a good person. So two very different theological perspectives, depending on the church uh, people go to. But as I mentioned, even a, a, a plurality, uh, you know, the largest percentage of people attending a Protestant church buy into the works approach. That is really shocking, because one of the things that you point out is of these 48% of American adults who believe if a person is generally good or does enough good things, they'll earn a place in heaven. Big proportions of these people also come from churches who actually teach orthodox doctrine. So what does that tell you about the disconnect about a doctrinal statement in a church and what is filtering down to the people? Well, uh, wow. Uh, that 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 would be a long conversation to have. <laughs> it really it really gets into how does discipleship work, and 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 what has the research shown over the years are effective ways of bringing people into a deeper relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we know, for instance, that a half hour lecture, uh, you know, once or twice a month, which is what the average church attender goes to church now, that really isn't going to connect with people's perspectives on life. We know that by and large a person's worldview is in place by the age of 13. And so to dislodge what it is that a person believes by the age of 13 when they're older is a very difficult proposition. I don't think that we've really come to grips with that. And so the educational model or the discipleship model that we have that we rely upon in churches typically is ineffective. Now, the Holy Spirit can change anybody's life at any moment. That's that's indisputable. But the approach that we've been taking and relying upon in so many of our ministries across the country for so long, it's in a way not shocking that these are the kind of numbers we're getting. What's most shocking to me is that we're not changing our approach to ministry as we continually find out what we've been doing isn't working. Yeah, you're right. That That is a big takeaway from all of this. And and it's interesting, you had mentioned 70% of Catholics who were surveyed here viewed this, um, you know, salvation as something that you had to earn. But when you're looking at the breakdown of numbers among people who would be considered Protestants or, or non-Catholics, Pentecostals, 46% of them were on board with that. Mainline Protestant, 44%. But Evangelicals, 41%. I mean, that is the one group that you would at least hope would get this doctrine right and, and filter it down to the people. So that's that's a huge wake-up call, it would seem. I would think so, because by definition, that's what an evangelical thinks or believes. Yeah. And, and so when they're not even buying into what the, char- the core characterization of what it means to be an evangelical, that you're putting your full trust and faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That's why he went through that that horrible, unjust murder that he experienced. It was for our benefit, and that's the only way that we can experience eternal life with God. But when when that's your core teaching, and four out of ten people sitting in the pews on a regular basis don't buy into it, that to me is a major wake-up call, that, that we've got issues that we've got to address. And, and it speaks to some of the other things, too, that we were finding in the survey, that, that suggests that 
people have a whole different perspective about religious faith than the leaders of churches think they have. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, obviously. And these numbers show that. And it goes back to one of the other concerns you just mentioned a moment ago that we're the, the shocking thing is that we're not really changing the way we do ministry based on these shocking statistics. It's as if people hear them and then just move on. Oh, that's terrible. OK, on to the next thing. We really ought to be assessing how ministry is done and how discipleship is done, as you've mentioned, George. Something else, dare I even ask, the findings on how Americans view sin. What did you find out about the relevance of sin being on the wane? Well, I mean, people don't take sin all that seriously. Right now, we've only got a little bit more than half of the adults in America who say that they consciously and consistently try to avoid sinning because they know that it offends God. So, first of all, the fact that a relatively small proportion of people, yes, it's a slight majority, but in a nation where 71% of those adults consider themselves to be Christian, in a nation where more than nine out of ten households have a Bible, you know, I, I mean, we could go on and on with all the Christian history and, and, and so forth. Yeah. But when we don't understand what happens to the potential relationship we could be having with God because of sin, we pretty much ignore that. That tells you a lot about how seriously we take our faith and what we believe about God and his purposes for our life. You may recall earlier in, in uh, you know, this whole process of releasing the data, one of the things we looked at had to do with what people believe is the purpose of life, and, and it was a relatively small number of people who said that it really had anything to do with knowing, loving, and serving God. That's it amazing. Self. Yeah, it was more about personal happiness and fulfillment. Wow. Well, Dr. George Barna with us. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today after this. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. 
services. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Do you believe that Americans really understand the truth about sin and salvation? Well, Dr. George Barna is one of the best experts when it comes to this kind of data, and it's been conducted for the American Worldview Inventory 2020. George is joining me. He's director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And we're talking about what Americans believe about salvation and about sin. And as you said, George, right before we went to the break, it seems it's not so much about sin and salvation as much as it is about happiness for Americans, but Christians ought to know better. It, it, I mean, is, are people sleeping through the services that they're going to every weekend? I don't know. Well, I think it goes back to that, that issue about if a worldview is pretty much set in place by the age of 13. And by the way, one of the things we found is that uh, over a longitudinal study, people's beliefs, their attitudes, their values really didn't change much. And we came to the conclusion what you believe at age 13 is pretty much what you're going to die believing. And so if we want to crack that mental facade, if you will, and really get inside a person's brain, be able to to renew their mind, to have their thinking transformed, as Romans 12 talks about, well, it may not simply be by having somebody stand in front of us for a half hour and tell us truth. Uh, You know, first of all, recognize most people don't see it as truth. Most people don't believe that the Bible is free of errors. Most people are concerned about the fact that they really don't know how or feel they can't implement scriptural truth because there's so much interpretation of scriptural text. They don't know what to make of these things. You put all this together, and what people, I think, are basically doing is they're crying out and say, would somebody please go back to the beginning and let's start with the basics, and let's build it from the ground up. Because when we just launch into a series of sermons or, you know, presentations over the course of four consecutive weeks about a currently hot topic, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where that fits into the total theological framework that I need to have, which is what their worldview is, because we never had an intentional and strategic approach to developing their worldview when they were young, much less when they were older. Yeah, that's very important. Very important. So we have seven out of 10 Americans claiming to be Christians, but just over half, 56%, say they consciously and consistently attempt to avoid sinning because they know that it offends God. But then this is even worse, George, when I look at this statistic. You have another 63% of adults saying that some kind of faith is more important than which faith you're aligned with. 68% of professing Christians embrace that idea, 56% of of which or 56% of evangelicals were on board with that concept. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable that that is what it is. Well, and, and this is why I say we've got to step back and re-examine what, we, what it is we think that we're doing. Because when people are saying, look, all that matters is that you have some faith. It doesn't matter which faith. Just grab onto something. Well, 
everybody's got some kind of faith. You know, maybe it's faith in nothing. Maybe it's faith in Allah. Maybe it's faith in God and Jesus. I mean, there are a lot of different options out there on the table, which is why when we study worldview, we find there's probably about a dozen different worldviews that have been mixed into each individual's personal worldview, because what they're trying to do is make sense of the world. They're trying to make decisions that cause them to feel like they're doing what's right, that, that making themselves feel comfortable, making themselves think, yeah, this will be in my best interest. Well, you know, when you have that kind of potpourri of, of things that you're mixing together, you're not going to be on track. And so we've got to step back and say, look, it's not just enough that you come to church. It's not just enough that you believe something. What you believe matters, and that's what we've got to example. Absolutely. Here's something else that it really stands out for me. The findings on eternal destination. Only half of Americans believe they are going to heaven, about 54% of the people that you talk to. But what else did you find out about where people believe they will go when they die? Yeah, this was one of those fascinating things that, you know, on the one hand, you've got about half of Americans saying that when they die, they'll go to heaven. And then you ask them, well, why do you think that? And what you find is that, well, in point of fact, only about a third of Americans believe that's going to happen because they've confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their Savior. So you've got a lot of people that are trusting other things, you know, their good works the fact that they've gone to church consistently, the fact that they consider themselves to be Christian, the fact that they may believe that there's such a thing as universal salvation, that is, God made us, therefore he's going to reclaim us. He's not going to let anybody suffer eternally. Uh, So you've got all those different perspectives. But then we also need to look at the other half of the country who does not believe that they're going to heaven and say, well, what do they think is going to happen? And so we found that about one out of eight of them, 13%, said, I'm not worried about it because there's no such thing as life after death. You die and that's it. We've got one out of 12 who believe in reincarnation. They think they're coming back as something else. Who knows what? A dog, a cow, a person, a house, who knows? You've got one out of 12 people who say that they're going to go to a place of purification prior to being allowed into heaven. That would be predominantly a Catholic view, the whole idea of purgatory, you've got only 2% of Americans who believe that when they die they'll go to hell, and then you've got another 15% who say they have no idea. I've got to tell you, Janet, for a nation where for more than 250 years we have been proclaiming the gospel, to look at that profile Boy, if that isn't a kick in the pants, I don't know what is. No, it is. It really is. 2% believe they will go to hell. That's an astonishingly low number. And I wonder what's in their minds. Do they did they want to remedy that? I mean, did you get that far when you were surveying them? <laughs> no. I mean, you know, they just accept it as the way it is, that yes. they're going to live how they want to live. And if the consequence is that they go to hell, so be it, which to me indicates... They have no idea what hell is like. No. They really don't understand what that means. Because if they did, they wouldn't just be so blasé about it. Oh, yeah, whatever. That's where I'm going. Uh, you know, that's not something to be proud of. No, it isn't. And it's a little bit shocking to me that 8% believe they will be reincarnated. And I wonder what that says about the influx of Eastern religion and Eastern sort of influence on the American population as well. 
Yeah, it's been growing significantly, and that's one of the things that we see creeping into people's worldview more and more and more, the kind of Eastern mysticism that is attractive to a certain sector of the population. So that's probably about four times the number that it was 30 years ago. And that may not sound like much to you, but as a sociologist, I look at that growth pattern and that's terribly significant. I mean, that, that's that's a real big deal. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And I'm glad you said that because it was alarming to me. But I, I'm not the expert uh, you are. So, yeah, I, I think that's very significant. What about evangelistic fervor, George? That's missing. I know there, there have been statistics I know you've done before in evangelism. What about the interest in personal evangelism? What did you find out about that? Well, it's actually decreased. I mean, it, it was low 25 years ago. Uh, you know, it, it was in the, the low 50% range, anywhere from 51 to 55, depending on the year we studied it. But now it's down below half of adults who would say that, that they feel that they have a personal responsibility in appropriate situations to share their religious beliefs with people who possess different religious beliefs than they do. So we're down now to 49%. It is higher in evangelical churches. People who attend those churches, three out of four of them say that they feel they have that personal responsibility. But in other Protestant churches, again, it, it, it's half or lower. So it's not good, but, but let me just throw out a thought here. And and I know some people are going to hate hearing this, uh, some people are going to say, oh, what's this guy's problem? I'm actually kind of pleased that it's at that rate, that it, that it's lower. Because if what they're out there sharing is the nonsense that we've just been talking about for the past half hour or whatever, uh, I don't want them sharing that perspective about Jesus, about salvation, about the gospel, about the Bible, about how we're supposed to live. Because if they really believe that you're the only one who can dictate right or wrong for your own life, because there are no moral absolutes, you're the only one... You know who can uh, you know determine what success is for you, and it's all about your own personal needs and satisfaction, and, and on and on and on. That's not the kind of quote unquote Christianity I want them sharing. I had the exact same thought actually before you said that. <laughs> I said, "Oh, great! So we have forty nine percent of evangelicals out there saying things like, well, if you're good enough, you know, you'll probably get in.' Exactly. We don't need that. What we need is, it seems, evangelism among evangelicals. That's what it really says to me. Is that an overstatement? Do you think? No, I, I think that's very fair. You know, I mean, this is one of the few times that I've been thrilled that we haven't been doing our job. Hmm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is the point. We've got to get the gospel right, and we have to understand just the basic truths of Christianity before we should get out there and, and share them. And, I, you know, again, this goes back to what you said, that the country has kind of this anything-goes-happiness mindset when it comes to what we are as human beings as far as what we believe and what our values are and our lifestyle. But why is this so prevalent, would you say, among evangelicals? I know we kind of touched on this before, but... Is it the status of the churches? Is it that they're not paying enough attention to discipleship when kids are young, like you mentioned before, or just kind of a big combo of all of that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. And, and, you know, I mean, the, the scriptures tell us that we are up against a very clever adversary. And so he knows that he has just one thrust against the church, we can combat it. But if he comes at us from a number of different angles, it's much more difficult. We've got to be more alert. We've got to be more clever in responding 
to what we're up against in this spiritual battle. But, yeah, I would say it all starts with what we're doing with children. If we are not taking them seriously as spiritual agents, I can guarantee you that Satan is. So all the different things that are taking place in the environment that kids find themselves hour after hour, day after day, is geared toward moving them away from God. Yeah, that's unfortunate. George Barna, thank you so much for being with us. George, keep up the good work. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Could it be it was a year ago now that the New York Times Magazine launched the 1619 Project, that initiative aiming to reframe U.S. history around slavery, 1619 being repackaged as our nation's foundational date because it was the year the first enslaved Africans arrived on Virginian soil. But as the Washington Examiner reported a few months ago, the head of the 1619 Project conceded she got it wrong when she reported that one of the primary reasons the colonists revolted against England was to preserve the institution of slavery. She retracted that and ended up saying she meant to say some of the colonists fought to preserve slavery, not all of them. And there's a lot wrong with the 1619 Project, much more than that. That's exactly why my next guest opposes the goals of this project. Bob Woodson is founder and president of the Woodson Center and founder of the 1776 Unites campaign. And we're delighted to have him here now. Bob, so great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Well, for the invitation. What is your reaction, not only to the 1619 Project, but the events that have occurred after the 1619 Project came out? We now learned from a Black Lives Matter activist in Chicago that looting is reparations. I mean, how do you see all of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's really been the, it, for which it, it's really the culmination of a process that started 50 years ago. I don't have time to unpack it, but People on the extreme left have been trying to really uh, charge America uh, with racism uh, and trying to define the nation by its birth defect of slavery. Their contention is that the problems facing black America in the urban centers of 70% out of wedlock birth, the violence, that that is caused the, the legacy of slavery and discrimination and they really have hijacked the moral authority of the civil rights movement that legitimately were addressing um, these ills. And they have really hijacked. And unfortunately, the civil rights community has been silent. But some of us, civil rights veterans and others, we have uh, pushed back against it to defend the nation's founding principles. And so we, we, we believe that our founding is 1776. But we are not interested in engaging in a uh, gladiatorial debate. Instead, we are producing essays that validate that America is defined by its promise. And so we we have essays about how blacks achieve resilience in the presence of slavery. Twenty blacks were born slaves who died millionaires. And this is the history of this country. Uh, we can never be 
defined by our birth defect, but by America's promise. And so we are providing curriculum. We are providing alternative narrative to to this uh, false uh, proposition that America is uh, racist in its DNA, and therefore um, it's almost a rogue nation. And so we are countering that. Which is wonderful. I think that that's, you know, the, the time has come that we really need to push the truth about our founding. And as you said, the birth defect, I, I like the way that you phrased that about slavery being something that was a terrible blight on our country. But we fought a civil war. We got rid of it and we got rid of all of the you know terrible segregation that we saw in the 1960s. How do you think this 1619 Project narrative actually harms black Americans, especially in light of what you said about the long history of black America's achievement and success like the millionaires that you mentioned? Well, you know, the worst thing you can ever uh, impose on someone is a good excuse for their failures. Hmm. And that's what that's. And, and also people are motivated to change when they see victories that are possible, not injuries to be avoided. And it really is insulting to black America to portray black America as impotent victims that are involved in a system that is beyond their control. We are the only nation on the face of the earth that fought a war to end uh, slavery. We are the only nation with an emancipation proclamation in the world. That's why people of color are risking their lives to come here and enjoy our birthright. And so we really believe since the left is using race and black, uh, the black uh, experience as a foil against this country, it is important for people of color to lead the defense of this nation. So that's why 1776, we we're really proud to stand up for America and, and, and really challenge those who are trying to deface this rich reputation of ours. So we're proud to stand up for the country. Uh, Right. It's important. You know, how would you put it into words just in a very brief package? If you were to have someone who is really buying into the 1619 Project narrative and really buying into the Black Lives Matter grievances, how would you begin to persuade them? No, you're seeing this all wrong. America actually has been a great land of opportunity and freedom, and that extends to everybody. All you've got to do is look at the success that blacks have experienced around this country. We elected a black president, and twice we elected a black president. Yes. There's just evidence all around us that black Americans in every conceivable category we are achieving is success. We have billionaires. We have millionaires. We have blacks. Who are, there is not a single job in America that a black person cannot have. Right, exactly. So, so the pointing to the successes and pointing to what has been beneficial for the black community is very, very important. Why do you think there aren't more voices like yours who are really pointing this out? There are some fantastic people, obviously black Americans, who are pointing this out. But why isn't this more widespread at this point? Because surely there are many, many people who think and believe as you do. Well, a lot in the media, liberal media, is, is really pushing this narrative that blacks are, for, are, are America's victim and whites are our villains. And as I have said, that uh, I have suffered my last rich, angry black 
and I've suffered my last self-flagellating and guilty white person. Hmm. And, and I think all of us um, must begin to be honest and be willing to stand up and speak the truth even when it's inconvenient for us. Absolutely. But we shouldn't allow, our, we shouldn't allow people to browbeat us into conformity on the issue of, of defaming the country. Well, that's right. I mean, and that's what's so sad about the whole thing. Do you look at the 1619 Project as being part of the catalyst for what we're seeing out on our streets right now? Absolutely. I just think it's been hijacked by the extreme left. They, they, they have abandoned all pretexts of caring about black social justice. And I think that the civil rights leadership and the Congressional Black Caucus needs to be called out for not um, distancing themselves and the civil rights movement from the lawlessness and anarchy that is being perpetrated by the extreme left in the name of social justice. Uh, and, and, and so I really think that they need to be called out for that. Well, they do. and that's- Otherwise, they, they're, they're complicit in it. You're right. You're absolutely right about that. And and yet we see the 1619 Project getting these curriculum into schools and so forth. Education is a huge part of this. Like you've mentioned, the articles and the materials that you're putting out at 1776 are really vital right now, not just for the black community, but for all Americans. Right. But it, but it also behooves uh, people who are standing up for the country to realize that this is a street fight and it's not going to be won by just publishing papers condemning what the other side is doing, we must join forces with low-income black parents who are fighting for the right to a decent education. For instance, in a gubernatorial race in Florida in 2018, the Republican DeSantis won by 32,000 votes, and that's because 100,000 black low-income parents voted for him because he supported education choice. Good so black Americans indicated by their actions, they're willing to break ranks and vote against even another black candidate, Gillum, who had uh, Barack Obama and uh, Oprah Winfrey coming in and, and campaigning for him. But 100,000 low-income black parents voted against Oprah and Obama. They did not vote race. They voted issues. And that is what is best for their children. I love it. Great stuff. 1776unites.com, the website. Bob Woodson with us. Thank you so much, Bob. God bless you. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing 
introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. And that ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. The cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture, along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Wow, some big stories to get to in a short amount of time as we're trying to squeeze everything in on today's broadcast. Kamala Harris will join Joe Biden on the Democrat ticket for president and vice president. Yeah, a real moderate pick there. I was reading a funny story in the National File that she is actually descended from a slave owner. Isn't that interesting? That's going to be an interesting little topic for debate when that comes around. But Kamala Harris, virulently liberal, pro-abortion, everything that you could possibly say negatively about a progressive you could say about Kamala Harris. But the thing that really stands out for me is how she treated David Daleiden, the pro-life hero. And I interviewed him a few months ago. You might have heard the interview that I did with David Daleiden. She is actually being sued by David Daleiden in the Center for Medical Progress because of all kinds of things that went on when they were trying to target David Daleiden. But she ended up meeting in person in secret with Planned Parenthood and then basically signing off on a raid on David Daleiden's home. His home was raided. Do you remember this? Do you remember when this happened? So let's just keep this on the front burner so people will remember exactly what she did to David Daleiden at a time when she really could have stood up as attorney general in California and done the right thing and gone after Planned Parenthood. She was in Planned Parenthood's back pocket and now is in the midst of litigation over it. So, you know, anytime we hear anybody from evangelical circles and we know some of these never Trumpers and some of their friends on the far left woke end of evangelicalism will come up with some reason why you've got to back Biden and Harris over Trump Pence. They're they're entitled to their political opinions, but I think it's going to be very difficult to reconcile the Christian faith with this, I with, you know, pro-abortion. And it's kind of funny because as I was telling you, you had these black leaders who came forward and told Biden, either you pick a black woman for VP or else you're going to lose. I don't know how she's going to help him win. I really, really don't. And I go back to Ricky L. Jones's opinion column in December in the Courier Journal, and he, he's going into all of these great reminders of what happened to Kamala Harris. I mean, she was this once celebrated presidential candidate. She called it quits. It's not like she was almost winning, like she wasn't getting traction. Some argued Harris never articulated a clear and consistent message distinguishing her from competitors. This is from Jones's piece. Others believed she irreparably damaged herself by supporting Medicare for all, which many see as a political non-starter. Somebody said, yeah, no, it was a bad run, badly run campaign. Others said she was a victim of a racially stacked primary deck. All that may be true, he said, but it misses the most important part of the story. What is the most important part of the story? 
the black voters didn't like her. They didn't like her. It was one thing for Harris to receive little to no support from whites in Iowa, but how could the fact that blacks in South Carolina and beyond were not excited about her either be explained? Indeed, Harris was quick to showcase her racial bona fides early in her candidacy. She graduated from Howard University, and she's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Blue Blood Black Sorority with a sociopolitical network supposedly so extensive that CNN's Maeve Rustin called it Harris's secret weapon. She announced her candidacy on MLK Day in 2019, and that and her blind side of Joe Biden on his busing record made it clear she was attempting to lure African-American votes by wrapping herself in the cloak of black struggle. But it didn't sell. While some members of the self-involved black bourgeoisie nauseatingly praised her, younger blacks and black progressives were taking deeper, dispassionate dives into Harris's real world record, and they didn't like what they found. To the chagrin of her supporters, and keep in mind, her supporters, we're not talking conservative Christians here, we're talking far leftists here. Close examinations of the woman who took pride in the title of California's top cop by writers like Lara Bazelin and C.J. Sierra Morella and others revealed that Harris had been nothing close to the civil rights warrior she claimed to be. In actuality, she spent much of her professional life prosecuting and persecuting poor people and minorities. Bazelin, for example, wrote that Harris opposed or stayed silent on multiple aspects of criminal justice reform. She laughed when a reporter asked her about decriminalizing marijuana before reversing course years later as public opinion changed. She opposed a bill requiring her office to investigate police shootings. She also opposed statewide police officer body camera regulations. Her record on police reform was so troubling for many that Garofoli cited former Harris supporter and California activist Felicia Jones lamenting how many more people need to die before she steps in. And Harris didn't stop there. She even fought for a law that would prosecute parents of habitually truant elementary schoolers, despite concerns that it would disproportionately affect low-income people of color. And it went on and on and on. And basically, the upshot of this piece was... Harris never wavered in her support of the death penalty. That's one more point. But the the upshot here, uh, it it was black people really didn't like her. And she left the race largely because she could not secure the black support that any black presidential candidate has to have. He points out, contrary to arguments centering on pragmatism, most black people did not reject her because they thought she couldn't win. They didn't support her because they didn't trust her and they were wise not to. (laughs) Oh, let's see how this goes. Let's see how it goes. It's very crazy. Now, another big story I want to get to, because we're going to have lots of time to get into Kamala Harris in the days ahead. But I want to get into this story because, as you know, we've been talking about Godspeak Calvary Chapel in California. Pastor Rob McCoy, you heard some of his sermon from this previous Sunday. Great stuff. Standing up for constitutional freedom of religion. Well, We now have an update on a hearing that took place yesterday morning. The Ventura County officials sought an additional restraining order from the Superior Court against Godspeak Calvary Chapel. They wanted this additional restraining order because the church continued having worship services despite the emergency restraining order that was issued on August 7th. Now, the request asked the court to not only hold the pastor in contempt of court for exercising his First Amendment right to practice his religion freely, but it also sought to authorize and direct the sheriff of Ventura County to take all actions reasonable and necessary to close the church property. Now, 
Think about this for a moment. This is how vindictive it's getting out in Ventura County. They actually wanted to send sheriff's officers to shut down the church. So they wanted to use law enforcement to go after a pastor and a congregation where there is not one case of COVID-19, where they have been socially distancing themselves, where they have a pastor who has been willing in April to resign from the city council because he knew that there would be a showdown and it wouldn't be right for him to be doing this as a pastor while also trying to be a member of the city council. There was a conflict of interest there. So doing the right thing, he stepped down and he said, I'm going to violate your coronavirus order because it's ridiculous. And he's right. It is ridiculous. Now, on the matter of the sheriff's officers stormtrooping their way into the church to shut it down by force, the judge, thankfully, didn't go for it. They didn't go for it. The the judge didn't go for it. Uh, The judge, O'Neill was his name, mentioned the importance of the balance between the First Amendment and the health risks, as well as his concern with escalation and allowing the sheriff to maintain a neutral peacekeeping position. So this judge had more of a sense of calm about him than apparently Ventura County officials did and said, how about we don't escalate this by you stormtrooping your way into a church and shutting them down by force? So that was good. But there will be a hearing on the motion for contempt toward the end of the month. So that goes on. I, I'm I'm just really happy that this pastor's hanging in there. I am. I'm really happy he's hanging in there because I think this is an extremely important issue. You know, I had interviewed yesterday attorney Hermit Dillon about this lawsuit in California that parents have filed against Gavin Newsom and some California government authorities over this issue of closing down the schools. And one of the things Harmeet mentioned yesterday, and I think it's very significant and so significant that I'm going to mention it again, is over this uh, Supreme Court ruling on Johnson v. Massachusetts. And this is a 115-year-old case. It's been used many, many times to try to uphold the rights of you know authorities to be able to implement public health rules. It goes back to implementing a smallpox vaccine. That was the original issue. But as Harmeet pointed out on yesterday's program, the Johnson decision also was used to justify, back in 1927, the forced involuntary sterilization of so-called feeble-minded people. And how many Americans today would say that seems fair? That seems fair. Just involuntarily sterilize them in the name of health. I'll tell you what, lots of evil things have been done in the name of health in the world. So I think that's a, a very important thing to keep in mind. And the Johnson decision was cited by the judge last week who issued the temporary restraining order on behalf of the county against Pastor Rob McCoy and Godspeed Calvary Chapel. Important thing for people to remember It's not constitutional what California is doing. It's just not. And the fact that this pastor is willing to go to the mat over it speaks volumes for his biblical conviction and his courage and his understanding of what his rights are and what his church's rights are, Christians' rights are as Americans. We live in a free country. Let's keep it that way. We've got to leave it there. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate your being with us every single day here on Janet Meffer today. And we'll see you next time. 